right, welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Sinclair. And I'm Drew Garrison. All right, let's jump into it, Drew. What are we drinking today? Well, my friend, I think you're going to like this one. And it will always be my goal to surprise you with cool stuff. And with that being said, we're going to kick it off with the Ararat 7-Year Brandy. That's exciting. It is very exciting. So for those of you who don't know, Ararat is a Armenian brandy. Do you know where the name comes from? I don't. Where does it come from? Ararat is the name of the mountaintop that the Noah's Ark settled on after the floods. Assuming you believe that. Well, sure. But it's a good story. <laughs> it is It is a good story. And these guys are definitely one of the most well-respected Armenian brandy producers um, out there. And they do a really, really quality product. And uh, said I kind of picked, uh, went with the seven-year one. They offer... Lots of different options here. Um, I love their brandy. It's so much fun. I I mean I'm I'm partial to brandy as it is anyway. Um, I think it's especially in this day and age completely underappreciated. There's a lot of truth to that, and I think for myself when I do bring this around to different people and show them, they're just kind of like, "Whoa, I didn't know brandy could." taste that good and then also be that affordable as well yeah well especially especially this brandy is really approachable yeah so this brandy was actually introduced in 1887 so it's been around for a very long time um, it's very popular in your eastern european countries um, it's made with white armenian grapes so do you know the bridles you know what? I don't. I don't either. I looked them up and I was trying to find information and shocking. It's a little vague. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure we can get out there and find something we can maybe... Google Translate and translate your Armenian uh, website. Not, not, as well as, <laughs> not as well as you think it would. So. Um, That's just delightful. Yeah, it's just a super, super fun spirit. And again, it's one of those ones that you don't really see too many people. Working with a whole lot of brandy, drinking a whole lot of brandy. Yeah, I think it gets a bad it gets a bad rap because of the the cognac craze in nightclubs, um, and I think even the people who tend to drink, you know, that henny or that remy, um, and that's how they call for it. I think they don't even realize that they're drinking brandy. They're drinking the name brand, right? Right. So even if we're talking about cognac. Um, it tends to be rich, tends tends to have like strong vanilla notes. This brandy is it has a little bit of that, but it's a little bit more spicy, which I tend to enjoy. So I, I think it's still really approachable for anybody who's looking for um, a new experience, you know, and something that's maybe a little off center from what you're used to, mm-hmm. but but not so so out in left field. Yeah, so foreign that. It's unapproachable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely one of, like, brandy in general is a spirit that I really haven't taken that dive into yet. And I have a couple books. I'm primed to do it. I'm, I'm ready to do it. What are those books? Do you know do you, any sticking out to you that you're really excited to read? There's one that um, is, it just it's just called Cognac. Oh, cool. Yeah. That was recommended to me by, um, actually, the Hennessy... National ambassador Jordan. Oh sure, yeah. yeah. We actually met in Oaxaca of all places, so oh. naturally where you meet the cognac ambassador. <laughs> sure. you know? But really, really awesome guy. Um, and so I was just like, hey, I really want to, I really want to take this dive. And he's like, grab this book. This is that's 
where you should start. Just literally called cognac. Nice orange cover, cognac right across the middle of it. So that's great. Maybe maybe I'll have you do a book report for this podcast after you're done with it. I, you know, it's been a long time <laughs> since I've done one. Um, you know, I'll put together a little presentation for you. I have a nice cover on it as well. Oh, that's great. Double and space. That actually might be a fun thing to do. Just like random book reports. You're like, I just read this and it's amazing. And I also made this, you know, Art Deco thing for it or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so that's. Um, so that's the Ararat. Uh, they do have a lot of other um, expressions within within the brand line. So like I said, they have a 3, 5, 6. Um, there's also a 10, 15, 20. They also have done a couple one-offs with like famous people in Europe as well. So Oh, cool. I'm, yeah. I'm excited about the uh, – I haven't had the 20-year, um, but I definitely plan on carrying it here at Good Bottle. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about uh, getting my hands on that and trying it if it's you know even remotely – um, I don't know the right words. It, 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 if the quality of the seven years is to be projected through the twenty year, I mean that's a that's a pretty safe assumption, though. I, I like, would think so. I mean, there's obviously exceptions. I, mean, I for myself, I find this really weird thing where, like, when you come to like Scotch whiskey, I love fifteens. Yeah, fifteen, and sixteen, I, and I love twenty-one plus. Mm-hmm. I have a really hard time with like eighteens. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a pretty typical um, uh, connoisseur uh, um, uh, uh, preference yeah um, for people who are well educated and have been drinking a lot well like I appreciate us. the compliment uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I, yeah o- over oaking is definitely a thing and maybe that's something that we can explore in the future ah, totally totally down but I'm gonna continue to drink this while we talk about our headlines yeah so we're gonna jump right into it and the first one that i have for you guys is ddl is going to enter an oil and gas venture what's ddl ddl is i was gonna get there um is the demerara distillers limited so the way that that pertains to our industry is these are the people responsible for all of the Demerara rum available in the in the world, right? So um, they're located in Guyana, and uh, for a long time, like so, examples of that would be Lemon Heart, uh, Skipper Rum, right? And uh, El Dorado, they rum. produce El, El Dorado as well. Yeah. That's actually their in-house brand. Yeah. So you know, brands that we're familiar with, brands that we're we're used to seeing, and um, I think it's important though to the, at least for the listener who might not who might not know, um, Demerara rum is different than Demerara sugar. Um, Demerara rum is a protected name, but Demerara sugar can come from really anywhere, and is more about the production process of creating that sort of um, flavor profile of sugar. Yeah. Versus the rum, which is, which has a designation origin, right? The yeah. do. And I think that's a, that's an important point to make because that actually is going to give you a little bit of a backbone for this story. So there's been a lot of uh, concern over the past couple of years in terms of sugar production actually coming out of Guyana and how that number has continued to decrease, decrease, decrease over over the years. Um, it's also very evident in the fact that you know 200 years ago there was you know over 100 different distilleries in Guyana. And that has now down to one. Literally yeah. one. Literally one. Yeah. They did take stills from other people and put it onto one facility, which is kind of cool, but it's literally one. 
And uh, but the sugar production side of it, you know, you had sugar beets in Europe that really cut into a big part of their production and profitability and stuff like that. So you're not having as much sugar production. So the country is as a whole, it's a pretty poor South American country. And um, a few years back, you had different uh, oil companies going in. This one in particular is going to be Exxon. Yep. Went in and started to do a lot of digging and trying to find oil reserves right off of the coast of Guyana. And boy, did they find a huge one. Uh, projections right now is that they're going to be producing more crude oil than they have people in the country. Um, per like per person, which is just going to be the highest number in the world. I mean, we're talking about the potential to have Saudi Arabia money. Like that's how rich this country could potentially become. Sure. And right now, it's primarily made up of like farmers, and you know, like I said, it's a pretty low low income area. Again, bringing this back to how this influences the industry for alcohol is that there was legitimate concern that if you didn't have these sugar production continuing to go, that Demerara rum wouldn't be able to sustain itself. And there was concerns that like the DDO might be no more. And that would be a huge loss for obviously the industry. Um, now there's, of course, there's tons of reserves all around the world and it would be pretty far off that this would eventually happen because there is so much rum available right now. But still, just to have that company go away would be really, really awful. So to have this kind of news and, you know, you can get into all the different politics of it and stuff like that. Like it's not just going to be, you know, everything's going to change overnight. Like there's a lot of processes that still need to go through and a lot of things that need to be put in place because they don't really have the structure built to support this kind of growth right now. Right. Yeah. So there is some concerns there. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just really interested to see, they're looking at this as a real value add for the people of Guyana. And is that going to be the case in, you know, moving forward? I don't know. What do you think? I, you know, uh, I, in reading this story, I, I thought it was really fascinating that two, two companies struck oil on the same day. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was ExxonMobil and uh, uh, Tuller, is that right? It's uh, another, just a, a oil venture. Yeah. Uh, just offshore with them. Um. And uh, uh, I, for the rum industry, yeah. And, and I, I'm trying to figure the right way to say this. I, I think it would have been incredibly detrimental to the culture of rum to have DDL disappear. Off totally. Of that. And, Absolutely. And, and then on top of that, it would have been terrible for the country itself. I mean, it's, it is a big export for them. It's the biggest employer yeah. in Guyana right now. And if, I mean... I, on the cool side, they've got like giant wooden uh, column stills, which is kind yeah. of, yeah, it's yeah, just so it's, neat. Yeah. Um, uh, but it, you know, they're not a perfect company either. EPA shut them, shut them down uh, back in June for dumping wastewater down the streets. Yeah. And there's, like I said, there's a lot of things structurally that are not in place. In fact, um, recently the president of Guyana, had there was a vote of no confidence against him. Oh man! So now there's going to be a um, another election. I mean, this is this just is right for geopolitics and absolutely people people inserting themselves into other other countries' affairs, especially with a wealth of a new wealth resource. 
Yeah. Uh, we Well, it's already starting conflict with uh, Venezuela oh. because part of the oil find that they discovered, part of it's in it's in the oceans offshore. Right. Okay? Part of that strike that they just hit goes into what one could consider Venezuelan waters. So there's already fighting between the two countries over kind of who gets what and stuff like that. Yeah, I imagine. And then another thing, and this is actually more of just kind of like an awesome part of it, (laughs) is that um, because of this oil strike, um, Brazil was trying to sell some oil rights within the country. So, you know, that president down there is kind of not the best person and is really tearing up a bunch of the rainforest. Well, they tried to auction off four different sections and uh, nobody really participated because they're like, oh, by the way, we just hit this huge reserve over here. We already know. So they all went to auction and they had like nobody bidding on it. Oh, so it's amazing, right? That's so, really funny. So it's a big blow. For I mean, I, mean it, I, I hope that when I say it's funny, it's without it's without taking in the the human cost into that. But at yeah. least on a, from a political ego standpoint, like that's yeah, yeah, that's it was, entertaining. It was a big hit for for the Brazilian government, and um, so that's so it's already having those geopolitical implications and stuff. So, the um, basically, you know, again, like we, you know, there's something to be aware of because you know DDL is involved in a lot of things throughout the country. Now they're getting involved in this oil thing, and hopefully, this is something that. Because they're going to have a lot of success from this, and they're going to make a lot of money from this, then we don't have to worry about losing Demerara rum. Because selfishly, that's all that we really care about. Right. 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 So, yeah. so that's, that's it something. It keeps my Eldorado production uh, uh, um, stock, yeah. stock available yeah. for my consumption. Uh, you know, and again, if, if this, this podcast is always going to be about educating people and stuff. So, you know, if, if anything, if you don't care about the oil and stuff like that, you now know. That all Demerara rum comes from Guyana, you know. If you didn't already, which and that it's not sugar, right, right, right. So, uh, but I, I, nothing happens within a bubble, and I think this is a good reminder, right? Like, there, there's no or within a vacuum, I should say, right? It's, yeah. It, everything has implications to other aspects of life, right? And uh, alcohol production is affected and affects so so many. Parts of everyday life from in everywhere that this comes from around around the map, right? Yeah. So, uh, I think this is this is key. This is huge news. Um, I, it's exciting to see what happens. I I hope that all signs point to this being a really good thing for Guyana. Yeah, and I, I hope that it it remains that way. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, so now moving on to topic number two of uh, today. Um, recently. Pernod Ricard has been going out and they've been, you know, buying into a lot of like alternative spirits. Uh, Man, they, Pernod Ricard has just been growing. They've been buying wine. They've been buying into Canadian spirits. They're they're going nuts. Yeah. So, adding to that, the Pernod Ricard partnership is planning on bringing in Baiju to the international market. I'm really interested to see what the international market. How it? Oh, sorry, I have to make another drink here. Uh, <laughs> how it accepts Baiju? Um, you want to tell the listeners what Baiju is? Yes, I do. So, so Baiju is a uh, fermented sorghum that and sorghum is a is a form of like grass 
you can also make it with rice and different types of grains. It's very popular in China. It's kind of only popular. It's kind of yeah. In, in I, China and yeah, Asia. it's it's only popular in 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 China. It's uh, currently the most consumed product in the world. In the world. It's the number so, one spirit in the world, which so, is, uh, yeah, makes it a big deal. It makes it a very big deal. <laughs> That's huge. I mean, it sells more than Tito's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually all these things combined, which, yeah. is, which is crazy. So in 2016, so this is a couple of years old, so it's only grown since then, 5 billion liters Dear of Baiju was sold in China alone. <laughs> it's a lot. So, um, and then, now China is by far the largest online market for alcohol worldwide. It leads in almost every category, but the volume that's done by Baiju in their alcohol is 91%. Of all yes. of all Chinese spirits consumed. Is, consum- yeah. is, well, is that consumed or it's internet purchases? Um, I think it's I think it's just purchases, 91%. I mean, that's you. incredible. I mean, yeah. that's... Amazon, Amazon priming the hell out of Baiju. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty constantly. And so, in Baiju is something that you know you're having with meals and stuff like that. So it's a pretty it's pretty frequent that that people are drinking this. And uh, you know, Soju exists within this world as well. The difference between that and Baiju is Baiju tends to be a little bit higher in alcohol. Right. Well, it's, then, it's a proper distilled. Yeah, and it and product. it also has. Um, it has more of a mouthfeel that tends to be a little bit more appealing to its consumers. So, but I, I think you're right. I think it's one of those things that, um, you know, I, I work for a company that we carry a lot of the top products in other countries, right? Like this is the number one seller in Croatia. Well, it's like, who cares <laughs> yeah. in the U.S. that that's the number one seller in Croatia? Well, and absolutely, and, and the you know, the funny thing is, is that you know most of the stuff is very good. It's just that you, that's not a selling point, right? Right? Because right. it's like if I'm talking to you as an as an American, you're like, hey, this is number one seller in Croatia. You're like, I okay, like why does that matter? Um, but there, it's it is good stuff. So it's going to be really interesting to see how people are are going to go about it, right? And like you're starting to see a little bit of it come to the U.S. already. Like there's uh, in fact at one of our local kind of boutique stores there's a couple of bottles of baiju and it's i think one of them was 44 bucks and the other i didn't see i can, can't remember the Drew, does, does jvs carry any baijus we, we don't interesting we don't. which I, I mean considering the how eclectic your portfolio is that's that's actually pretty surprising to me yeah um in in regards to the perno thing like what i think is interesting about it is even though they're entering this partnership they're starting with Southeast Asia as the first market they're going into. Well, that's obviously. We're, but I'm saying is we're not talking Perno USA. We're just, talk, just talking Perno. Yeah, but there is the international thing. So the reason I bring that up is just kind of like so you have this big company. They see this really viable product. Obviously, that they're going to take it into Southeast Asia, but we're not seeing it from like we're not seeing like the the availability here in the U.S. It's like I wonder. What's going to be that catalyst to like have them come to the U.S.? Like I said, there's already a couple available here. Is the popularity of it being there like is it going to translate? And I think that's the case with a lot of different spirits. You yeah, know? you know, I have a I have a baiju at home. Um, I, I couldn't tell you how I got it. I don't, I don't really remember. Um, but the labeling on it says baiju vodka. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if they're going to sort of do the do the same, follow the same marketing techniques that vodka followed in the 1940s of calling it like white whiskey, um, flavorless whiskey. And I'm wondering if Baggio is going to tie itself to uh, vodka in that way because yeah. the flavor profiles, I, I suppose, are similar enough. Yeah, um, it's it's clean, it's dry, it's you know, it's a, a pretty. I don't want to say neutral, but it's 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 got a similar flavor profile to vodka. Yeah. Well, in the U.S., there's actually a company in the Midwest that did a rum, a rum. I'm I'm doing air quotes right now, that they use that sorghum as the source, and they got a lot of flack from it, you know, from rum aficionados throughout the U.S. and stuff like that. But it, in terms of what the U.S. like TTB considered it, they're like, oh, you can call it rum. Sure. So it's, yeah, that could be a tactic that they go and maybe not necessarily rum, but using some sort of recognizable spirit name to appeal to the American drinker and be like, oh, this is another Asian product. Oh, it's kind of like a vodka or a rum or whatever the case may be. It, w- it will be really interesting. So I'm excited to see that come into the market because, again, you're talking about billions of liters being consumed in this one country and i know you know china can pump up the numbers on a lot of different things but still like five billion liters and this was just a few years ago so you would yeah so undoubtedly i mean there's a clear reason why pernod ricard bought it right do you though and we have very little to go on in in terms of our assumptions but do, do you have an educated guess as to i'll say a whether or not Pernod Ricard will bring the Vaju to the U.S. market, mm-hmm. and B, if they do, what your assumption would be in that timeline? Okay, so the first thing is absolutely it comes to the U.S. You don't you don't partner like this company that they partner with is the biggest producer of Vaju in China. Okay, so you don't make that connection unless you're planning on bringing it to the u.s because it's, it's, it's such a huge spirits market yeah. if i had to put a time frame on it i'm saying i'm saying three to five years really yeah i think interesting it's, i think it's because right now we're at this fever pitch for all these weird spirits coming in from all different parts of the world yeah that it it makes the most sense to try to get it in within this time frame. So you you know you launch in the Southeast Asia, you get that I guess layup kind of. Sure. Right? You get that easy win early on because you already have a you lot of people who are already pay familiar off those with it. Debts. Yeah, right. and you you get that going. You establish the relationship. You build this marketing plan, and then you know year three of this partnership, you go. We're going to the U.S. Uh, my gut wants to say they're hitting California first. Well, that's I mean, California and New York are your you have to right. right. That's your. I mean, I guess you have to look into the demographics wise, but in terms of what's available and where spirits often start, it's California and New York. Right. So, well, California is its own country in in based on consumption. Right. Right, so it's definitely so. I think I think we'll see it soon. As we we've, we've already mentioned, it's it's something that you're already starting to see spring up um, in in the marketplace. There's not a whole lot of it. It's affordable. Like I said, the one I saw was forty four bucks. I mean, I I'd roll the dice on forty four bucks. Yeah, know, for a cool yeah. spirit. Yeah, and I think mo- most people, if they have that that uh, disposable income, yeah, would do the same. I'm I'm really interested, uh, and I will say excited tentatively 
on what that marketing is going to look like. It, in my head, I see it could go really poorly, or it could be really cool. And I'm uh, Pernod Ricard uh, is all over, you know, all over the map with their spirits and what Agreed. they have and what they bring to market. Um, for the listeners, Pernod Ricard is probably most famous uh, in the U.S. for Jameson. Mm-hmm. You know, Jameson Redbreast. That's that's all theirs. Um, but they also have other. You know, they have Pernod and they yeah. have Ricard. Those obviously is yeah. where they came from. Right. Um, and and they're, Altos and they're, Tequila. Altos Tequila. But you know, it's not as much of what they're known for. Absolute is theirs as well, which mm-hmm. is a big one in the in the 90s but has for sure taken a back seat and and no matter how hard they push uh, just looking that their their sales are down again uh this last year in absolute even though they were pushing really hard um to to sort of relaunch the brand it just i think the vodka craze is over and people are looking towards whiskey and they're looking towards flavor again um, yeah so we'll, we'll see yeah, and that's actually some of the numbers reflect that. Like, the the sales numbers coming in this year, flavored vodkas are down, flavored whiskeys are up. Yeah, yeah. I wish somebody would tell my local grocery store that, that, <laughs> that so they stop carrying flavored vodkas as much as they do. Well, eventually, that that the rubber will meet the road. And but you know, that justifies my position as an owner of a boutique bottle shop. It does. I mean, in, in mine as well as people who are, you know, just offering something a little bit different and trying to keep ahead of those trends and and things like that. It's good so. to know that we are preaching to the choir, Drew. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. We know who our audience is. Yeah. Uh, okay, so our our last story of the day, and uh, one that Chris is completely unaware of, which I think is a lot of fun. Um, this is actually somewhat local. Uh, this is a bar down in the Bay Area called Forbidden Island. Have you ever been there before, Chris? Oh, yeah, many times. Okay, so Forbidden Island is a tiki bar that's actually in Alameda, and it's just a really, really rad place. Uh, Michael Thanos is the owner. Really cool dude. Um, fun place to go. Like I said, it's a, you know, it's a tiki bar, so I mean, I'm obviously down for that. When you go into this bar, there are dollar bills pinned all over oh, it. Oh, yeah. To um, it's it's pretty ridiculous. But it's important to note that this is like the tiki bar. This is where you know Martin Kate got his start. And who owns Smuggler's who Cove owns Smuggler's and Cove a bunch of other tiki bars throughout right. throughout the area uh, throughout the United States. And uh, yeah, so this this you know this bar has uh, you know been around for a while. And when you would go and you would visit, you would uh, leave a dollar pinned into like the ceiling with a little note on it maybe some sort of memory it was actually started by one of their regulars who tied it back to this old tradition uh, in the south pacific when servicemen would leave those islands they would leave a dollar there with the promise that they would come back and so they'd come oh cool yeah so i thought that was kind of like a rad little fun story that i didn't didn't know but um so that so then also it has its ties to tiki in that way and uh, so what they ended up doing was uh, it became too much for Michael. He was like, oh, "There's just there's there's dollars all over the place they're on the ceiling now. They're coming down on the walls. They're just they're going everywhere." And he was just like, "I just I have to clean this up." So um, him and uh, the rest of the staff spent an entire day 
uh, cleaning up all these all these dollars. And it ended up being so much more work than they expected it was going to be, like most things in a bar, right? Like, oh, this will take us a little bit of while. It did not. They actually had to stop during the process and throw it all into garbage bags. They filled up four garbage bags full of these dollars. That's so fucking rad. And, 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 it, was, <laughs> and it was a pretty like dirty job as well that was pointed out by um, our friend John Peterson, who's our GM down there. And he was like, they had to wear masks and gloves because over the years they would also put fire retardant on the stuff, right? Oh, that so, makes sense. Yeah, makes so because you don't want a bunch, of, you don't want you know your bar to be flammable, especially in a tiki bar, yeah, where flames are flying. So it took them a very long time to do this, and then um, and then it was put on you know to them to, to count it all out. And do you have any guesses on what you think this dollar amount is? Uh, legitimately, I don't because I've I've seen it and and I wouldn't dare make a guess because I'm so afraid of undershooting it. But I all I will say is I hope that they actually had um, an actual counter like at the bank and not they didn't have to do it by hand. I don't I don't know if they did or not. We'll probably have to reach out to one of those guys and, and ask them. They did take a picture with all of it and it was very like Scarface esque, <laughs> you know? That's great. And so it was really it was really funny. So the number that they ended up collecting off of their ceilings, walls, any anywhere that people were willing to pin money. Ten thousand three hundred and sixty seven dollars. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. So that just speaks volumes as to the the community that's actually been um, curated. I'll yeah. say. Yeah, this there. has been over ten years of collecting, yeah. right? So you know, there's about you know a thousand dollars a well, year. Well, I know I gave at least three of those dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, in um, a surprise twist, there were regulars who weren't a fan of them doing that, of them taking the dollars down. So, well, I, obviously, I can I can see why that would be offensive to people because well, it's it's, their it's a main part of the decor and it's their contribution to the decor right. of the space. I just find it shocking that tiki people would be upset about something. You, you can't see my eyes roll, but they <laughs> rolled really really hard with that comment. So, um, so uh, yeah, obviously people were upset. I mean, again, for the reasons that you just pointed out, very much so a part of the decor. Um, a lot of the times with those dollars, like people would write their initials, they would put some sort of memory on there. Um, so it was, you know, it meant a lot to people. So, you know, way to kind of appease their customers and kind of make it right with them, they uh, decided to reach out to their staff and said, we want to donate this money. Who do you guys want to donate it to? And uh, with as Alameda Focus as they've always been, they picked three charities. And it was uh, Building Futures, Friends of Alameda Animal Shelter, and then the Alameda Family Service. They donated to these three charities over $8,000. That's amazing. Now, I can I can hear the wheels turning. Like, Drew, where is that extra 2000 some odd dollars? Well, that other, that other like $2,000 was actually like, like currency from other parts of the world and stuff like that like really colorful ones like ones that they like if someone did artwork on them they were like okay we can't we can't donate those those got pinned back into the ceiling so there That's is great so there is still about you know two grand on the ceiling right now the tradition is going to start over so you can now go in there now there's more space for it's you like to... hanging a dollar off of your tip jar at the beginning of your shift 
<laughs> so to entice people. Yeah, so you know, yeah. you know that this is what you're supposed to do. You're like, here it is, here it is. Um, it, and then they're they're going to continue to do some events and stuff like that. But I, uh, you know, I when I saw this story, it's it's just something that I really love, and I think it's it's something that speaks to the culture that they've created there. And uh, you know, I've I've spent a good amount of time at Forbidden Island. It's one of my favorite tiki bars that I've ever been to. It's just, it's so classic. It hits all the right notes. Um, you know, you got the, what the, the well-oiled machine that they are in that bar blows my mind. What I really enjoy about it is, um, because it is a classic, It's it's um, it feels sort of more like a neighborhood dive bar than it does a tiki bar. Totally. But, but the aesthetic is there. For it to still be a tiki bar, there's a, yeah. there's a, a lot of the shit hanging from the ceilings. There's yeah. buoys. There's paintings. There's the music. There's there's it, like the classic movies on TV. That's right. If it, you know? it fits it to a T, but it still feels comfortable. It still feels like they took an old. I actually don't know what they took, what it was prior to that, or if it was a bar prior to that. I yeah. just sort of assumed that it was. Yeah, and it feels a lot like an old Irish pub or something. You know that they just sort of transformed. But it's great. It and, is very warm and, and inviting, like a like a pub came to be. In. The 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 staff there is, I mean, they're they're par none. You know, like they 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 know their shit, and and yeah. they're not irritating about it. Well, I think one of my one of my favorite things about them early on was, I would go in, and they have two to three people taking orders. Right, and then they have two bartenders just cranking drinks. Oh yeah, right. And for the most part, depending on what, who's working and, and whatnot, is they're probably not going to talk to you. They're just sitting there. They're there to make drinks for just hours straight, and they're getting them out, and it's it's really fun. Now, obviously, over time, like you become friends with these people and stuff like that. And actually, my last visit down there, um, uh, John was actually working on a Saturday night, which he never does. And we got to sit right in front of him, and it was just fun because then we were sitting there, and he was trying out some new recipes, things that he wants to do with the menu and stuff. And to have that kind of experience at this really well-established tiki bar, and kind of be like, "Hey, we're thinking about doing this. What do you guys think?" It was just so cool, and it was just one of those experiences where you're just kind of like, "I'm always going to remember that," you know. And you know, you and know, it was it was really fun. And when you have like people that you really respect, like ask for your opinion on things. You're just kind of like, whoa, like that's that's really validating. That's really fun, and they're making you feel part of the experience, you know? I know I'm going to catch a lot of flat for saying this. I cannot wait. Especially from the Tiki community. I like when bartenders in Tiki joints are creating new, new drinks. Okay. Um, what are your feelings on new drinks at Tiki bars? I'm all for it. I, but I think that's also just part of where I'm coming from in my part of the industry. Is like I like to see the new stuff. I like to see the spins. I mean, play the hits. I want to see the hits there, and I'm going to gravitate towards certain drinks when I go into a tiki bar for sure. But if I'm talking to a bartender, and he's very excited about something. It's like, hey, I you know I thought about this. I'm like, hell yeah, let's get on. Let's get on that train. I mean, I, I the. When I've had new ones, like, and they end up, like, changing my perception, like, on Tiki and stuff like that, like, I love that. Like, one of the ones that I really enjoy is one from our friend Josh Hunt when he did the, the Headhunter's Grog. 
love that drink. That is that is easily my favorite drink. Now there are people out there who will say that it's not a tiki drink because he did not invent it at a tiki bar. But it was during a tiki competition. It was during a tiki. <laughs> See, this is what I'm talking about. This is why this conversation <laughs> is so volatile, and people will throw sticks and stones and lots of rotten fruit at me. But I'm fine with it. Invent new drinks. I like. I get tiki culture is old, and I get that tiki culture is tiki culture. Right. Right. But it's, its own thing. I think it deserves to grow and to change over time and to and to develop its new persona yeah well i think there's and i think most tiki people would agree with you there's no more bastardized drink in the current drink lexicon than the mai tai you know oh like the quote-unquote interpretations of the Mai Tai are vast and at some times in my mind criminal, you know. I would say more often than not they're criminal. Yeah. But, but this goes to my point in that it's, it's the traditional Mai Tai, which is the one that's delicious. The, yeah. the stuff with grenadine and pineapple juice and orange juice is more often than not pretty vile. Well, I think, so is it an issue that People are creating new drinks, or are they taking old names and completely changing them? That you think is the is the issue there for tiki people? No, I think I think it might stem from that, but I think most of the and let's be honest, the older, relatively wealthy white crowd that populates tiki bars, they like the old stuff. They like the hits. They they don't want the Rolling Stones to create a new song. They just yeah. want to hear, you know, no satisfaction. But over, I think over and over and over. Again. Yeah, but I think there's room for both. And and I do. I like I said. Like I want the hits to be there, but I also do like to see the new stuff. And and this goes beyond tiki, right? This is something that if you have something on your menu at any bar and it's your most popular cocktail, but you really want to change it up, you're gonna piss some people off if you take that off the menu. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so, I, I think it depends on your bar, but yeah, uh, uh, overall, that's... Also, why would you take it off? If it's your most popular drink, why, why would you take it off your I, I think sometimes, and I know you're guilty of this, is that bartenders are artists to a certain degree. But right, it's not even like, a certain degree. It's 100% fact. Yeah, so it's like, <laughs> I don't want to make this anymore. I want to get people onto something new. I'm sick and tired of playing Satisfaction. And I want to do something else. Yeah, but that's a bad... I am guilty of it. But it's a, it's a bad business choice. It, it might... It, you can... I think you can... There are ways of having the conversation with your community that allows you a new interpretation. You don't need... I We, we have taken off... I have taken off cocktails from menus because not because it's, they're popular but because it reached such a, a fever pitch where it didn't matter whether or not it was on the menu anymore yeah people were going to order it right like there's those brands that you don't necessarily need to have on so the back bar because people are going to order it anyway you don't need a margarita on your menu right like of course 
People will, or it's the most ordered drink in the world. Right. You don't need one on your menu, and yet we go places, and there's ten of them on your menu. <laughs> Which that's fine. You make ten different margaritas, cool. But I guarantee you, almost none of them are probably like a proper margarita, unless you're going to like I don't know Chili's, or you're going you know to a corporate place where they just they spell everything out. Yeah. You know? yeah a lot of places you just. You don't need it. You, it's wasted ink. It's wasted paper. You can right. you can do something else. You can show something else if cocktails are in fact a thing that you care about, which you should because they make money. But that's a whole other conversation for a whole other. Time. Little, and we and we already are spiraling with this conversation. We're trying to we want to bring it back to Forbidden Island. That's good. And the and the fact that um, you know these guys were able to create this really cool thing for their bar that. When they made a little bit of an adjustment to it, they pissed off a lot of their <laughs> regulars. But then they turned around and were like, "We're going to donate this money to these really great causes." So you're having this, you're having this community impact through this, you know, practice that's been going on for the past ten years. And and I'll I'll send it to you after. You got to see the picture of of Michael and and Johnson there with this the big the Bags big of money. pile of money like and then, then there's a big white mound behind them of powder. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's not part of it. That definitely is not part of it. But the the mound of money is pretty great. And um, that's great. And I think I I think that just any chance that bars have to do more for a community, bars are a manifestation of community. It's what they are. Uh, and I think that being able to do more than just simply exist, but to actually give back to that community, however however they see fit, um, I think is fantastic. And I think that creating a new tradition 10 years more down the road, if they're lucky enough to still be open that long, is fucking rad. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, and I think and I think they will. Like they're gonna they're gonna be able to have a lot of, you know new dollars new memories get put up there i mean obviously for their regulars they're going to want to be right back up where they were you sure I mean? i'll go gonna... i'll go back up and especially now i'll go in and make a make a point of hanging up more dollars yeah yeah it's kind of be like oh i guess i'm gonna do this again just gonna give away my money well if we can <laughs> if we can if we can up that again right you know if we could take that number and make it even bigger next time that'd be cool and to know that i played a super minute part in that yeah, but it's still exciting. It is cool, and I think they did like a really fun thing. And, and ultimately, what I really want to convey, like with this story, is that it's like you can kind of have these fun, cool little niche things that you do in your bar that can ultimately become a story, and can like this is going to reach a lot of different people through this like news source of like, yeah. you know, they, they have you know well, news teams going down there and seeing it and stuff Alameda is like not easy to get to either it's not it's no. it's a small little island sticks out into the bay off of Oakland you have to drive through either a tunnel or a bridge and those are the only two ways out or right. on and the tunnel is awful and the bridge isn't much better you yeah. know and the bar is closer to the tunnel than it is the bridge I believe yeah my favorite time to go to Forbidden Island is when somebody else is driving Fair. Ditto. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. They're like, do you want to go? I'm like, who's driving? They're like, I'll drive. I'm like, I will go for sure. <laughs> you know? It really, so if, if you guys haven't been down there, um, the staff is awesome. Yeah. The drinks are awesome. Actually, the food is awesome. 
Yeah, it the, is. The food's enjoyable. It's classic bar food. It's so great. Um, the wings are great. Mozzarella sticks. I mean, just all the stuff that I, I can't. Mean, I can't eat the mozzarella sticks because I'm a glutard. But eat Chris's portion for yourself. Please when you do. go there um, and share them with me, and then send me a photo. But make sure that you say these are awful. So that way I don't feel jealous. <laughs> I'll know uh, you're lying, but I, I like it when people lie to me. It's okay. Okay. So so that wraps all of our stories today and for this week. Do we want to do a question? Or we're at, what, we're at 44 minutes right now? Do you have a question? Well, I mean, we've had stuff. Like, we've done some practice rounds. Yes. Right? <laughs> Several. We've, we've done some yeah. summer practice rounds. You guys, this has been a labor of love for sure. You're welcome. Um... And so, you know, I don't really have one off the top of my head. I mean, we could, I guess we could get into some of the ones that we've discussed before. Like maybe, uh, you know, what would you change about the industry? How about this? For this one, I have a question for our listeners. Okay. And it's a nerdy question and it's a, it's a gray area question, but maybe someone out there can define it for me. Mm. What elevation is considered high elevation? That is a great question. Do we have to? Should we get background on that? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so um, last night I hosted a agave tasting over at Cantina Alley. That my good friend Chris here was was nice enough to join. And well, you um, bought my ticket, so I showed up. <laughs> I was really trying to give you the rub there. That was, no, no, it's fine. <laughs> yes, I supported you because you're poor right now. Um, Accurate, uh, but. We we were tasting this Chiranda from from Michoacan, and of course, Chris asked the question of, "Do you know what elevation this is being grown at?" It's just kind of like, man, I know a lot of deep cut stuff. That was one that had eluded me. And well, it's sugarcane, which is why I was fascinated by it. Right, right, totally, totally. No, no, no. It's it's justified, and I should have known better. But um, <laughs> so I don't I don't have an answer for it. He then goes, Google's it, right? Because yes. that's that's the best thing ever. And I encourage that in my in my trainings and tastings because I, I I'd rather know than than lie to you. And um, we came back with with five thousand three hundred feet high. Right. The city, the city is 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 that too off of to high. which neither one of us knew if that was considered higher. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> Fortunately, there was a guy in the front that was like, "That's high," and I'm like, "Okay, well, I believe but, you because I don't know." Yeah, I have no, I have no evidence to argue against that. So, um, I think if anybody I, else has some thoughts on what high elevation, should I be. imagine it's a pretty subjective, you know, determination. But given humidity, given sunlight, I, sure, right? But I don't know where one like is it is it just because it's higher than sea level that it's considered high elevation you know well, is it like a small it, barrel i don't know if like designation I don't, I don't know if like it would be subjective in the in the sense of you know humidity and things like that i think it'd be more subjective if like if you grew up in colorado that's <laughs> right like, right then it's subjective yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. this is kind of like you know if you grew up on the ocean you'd be like yeah 2000 feet that's high you know <laughs> whereas if you grew up in colorado it'd be like 
Oh, five thousand feet. That's nothing, you know. Like that seems to be more of like the subjective. Sure. Uh, nature. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, if we get any uh, listener comments. Yeah, totally. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about yeah, it. Yeah. So let us know what you think is high elevation. And True. then where, where where can people get a hold of you? So they can get a hold of me uh, via Instagram. It's going to be D Garrison Six. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook. Uh, we do have an email as well, the Good Bottle Podcast at gmail.com, yep. so you can send us uh, emails that way. You or can, if you're friends with us, you know, shoot us a text. What about yeah. what about you, Chris? What's the best uh, You way? can find me on Twitter at uh, Chris at Kristen Flair F L A I R, and similarly on uh, Instagram or Facebook, you can find me in the same ways. Uh, yeah. So I mean, you know, with that, we're going to continue to cover these stories. If you ever come across a story that you think that we should you know, dive into, send it to us. If you ever have a question or anything like that, maybe we can do a deep dive on. Or if you want to be a guest on the show, that's something we're going to do as well. So, you know, thank you guys for listening to this episode and we look forward to doing this more. Uh, cheers, buddy. Cheers, man. Take care, guys.